and welcome to episode 26 of the Detours in Music podcast. I'm Laura Ruppel, and today we have an interview with Dr. Jacqueline Wapple, instructor of harp at James Madison University. I hope you enjoy. My name is Jacqueline Wapple, and I am the instructor of harp at James Madison University, also at Washington and Lee University and Southern Virginia University, my three wow. adjunct positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I keep up a whole studio here in Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, in Harrisonburg, as well as Richmond. So I'm a, I'm a busy bee, that's for sure. <laughs> um, can you talk about your start in music? Sure, sure. So I came from a very, I would consider an untraditional background, actually, when it comes to kind of the harp world. A traditional background is kind of like where, you know, around four, six years old, they'll start up with the tiny little lever harps, you know, learning their notes with their baby little instruments. And around 12, 13, you start moving to the bigger instruments, ideally a full-size pedal harp. So the pedal harp is something you see whenever you're in the large ensembles. It's that, you know, six foot tall, it has all the pedals so you can play in all the keys. And it's about tens of thousands more dollars. Mm-hmm. And usually that, you know, they're joining their orchestra or their, their youth programs and playing in school. And then they go on to auditioning for college. That's kind of like the general approach. For me, not, not quite the same actually. Um, I did start with some piano and I studied with my mother. And I love my mother to death, but oh my goodness, I could not study piano <laughs> with my mom. I actually, we were driving, um, I, I lived in Texas at the time, and there was a teacher who had literally a big sign that said harps right off the side of the highway. And we went in, I saw the harps in there, went to a concert, and I was hooked. It was just one of those things like, that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so I started at 13 years old and I started on those little lever harps in a group class with about five or six adult harp players. So these are like, I mean, older women and men, I mean, in their 50s, 60s. And my teacher was Jeffrey Ricketts. Um, and he was actually a Renaissance festival harpist. So I came from a background of starting of actually really listening, a lot of improvisation. Um, and even down to, you know, reading chord symbols. So reading notes um, and of course, you know, being in a large ensemble did not quite happen for me actually until freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. So we did upgrade to a, a, a little bit of a bigger lever harp, so 38 strings, um, but I never where my family couldn't afford the pedal harp. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that traditional background of years of pedal harp practice and ensembles, I, I, I had not got there yet. So freshman mm-hmm. year, um, whenever I went to school, University of Texas is where I went. And uh, I remember to this very day, you know, that kind of deer in the headlights type of look. It was uh, quite terrifying, but the learning curve was huge. But my teacher saw something. I mean, I owe her to this day. She saw something in my work ethic um, and how I was able to learn. And I had to learn how to play pedals in one semester. And even beyond that, um, I don't know if you remember playing La Fiesta Mexicana that work. Um, I did not know what a conductor was doing. I mean, I don't know what any of this was. And I had played that by ear. I mean, in college, just play it by ear completely. So my teacher was very patient with me. And eventually I caught up and goodness gracious, you know, we went from, you know, the beginner music, learning the notes, uh, freshman year, all the way jumping up to advanced music. So as you know, a lot of challenges, um, anxiety, or you know, hand things like, oh my gosh, this is too much, just a lot of stress. And you bet, so that was, uh, in that case, that led me to where I was like, well, what am I gonna do with this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you had some 
comments on that, you know, uh, uh, with the schools you attended and why. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things, the uh, University of Texas was, we lived in Dallas-Fort Worth, and it's an amazing school. Mm -hmm. um, so many opportunities, uh, great professors, uh, huge band program. <clears throat> so you already know that it was like a big deal when I got thrown into those bands. Mm -hmm. uh, gosh, so terrifying. You know, the minute you see those eyebrows look over at you, you know, what's the harp doing over there? So I definitely stepped it up with a lot of determination, a lot of fear. Um, and there was a point where I was like, you know, is this worth it? Because it was so challenging coming from nothing, you know, just levers, uh, improvising, learning how to play chords and things. Uh, I, maybe I was like, should I have been a jazz harpist instead? Uh, so it was a real worry that I had made the wrong decision until um, Elizabeth Richter, um, the professor of harp at Ball State University, she came my senior year and uh, she, oh, she's like the angel from above. She's just, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, I would do anything for her because of what she did for me. Mm. She had a lesson with me and uh, we kind of talked about what my goals were and what she saw in me. And just like my previous professor, she saw something, mm -hmm. you know, something that I was willing to work hard, you know, past the adversity. And uh, I auditioned for Ball State for my master's in music. And, uh, you know, I really picked, I picked up the pace for sure to be able to have master's level music and boom, I got accepted for the assistantship there. And I'm telling you now, I mean, I wouldn't be talking to you right now mm -hmm. without that master's and that doctorate, not because of the degrees, uh, but because Ms. Richter was the most inspiring person in my entire life. I mean, it was just, I mean, we could have a whole conversation just about what she did as a person and as a mentor. Mm. Do you think that harp is an instrument that typically people have to start when they're young or more like affluent families have children that play harp mainly? That's a very good point. And that happens a lot, especially when I'm t teaching privately here um, because, you know, it can be kind of expensive. And at the time when I was starting um, a lever harp, I mean, you can rent one for a small lever harp, but you could never rent pedal harps. And now you can do that um, because when we talk about, you know, detours and later on, um, I worked in also in retail. So I saw that other side of the harp world and it's, it's one, it's a stigma. It's a real thing um, because even down to um, when I was living in Hong Kong, um, it was very, very prestigious just because it's so expensive, one, to buy one, mm -hmm. two, to maintain it and then lessons with teachers are quite expensive too mm -hmm. um, but times are changing so I really uh, I used to think that and it kind of was that way when I was younger because we just couldn't afford that kind of I mean they're like $32,000 for a really nice pedal harp I mean that's a car mm -hmm. right you want a car do you want a harp whenever you turn 16 if you can get either mm -hmm. so I, I agree it was like that but I think times are changing I truly okay. think when was that switch for you where you knew that you wanted to major in music? Uh, for my undergraduate or for my master's? For undergrad. For undergrad. So I went into it because uh, uh, I have a lot of interests. I mean, I'm like 5'8 and I was into gymnastics and I did all the painting and the art. I mean, I loved what I did and I loved, loved, loved history. Mm. So to this day, I mean, maybe we'll talk in 10 years mm -hmm. and we'll maybe have an answer for you. But to this day, I'm not sure why. I didn't do archaeology over the harp, actually, um, because we looked into both whenever I was in my undergraduate. We tried to see what path was for me. And mm -hmm. I don't know whether it was just my teacher was very charismatic and, you know, saw something mm -hmm. uh, 
or the archaeology program was probably just not my cup of tea to this day. I don't even know. Mm -hmm. But it, I was going to go in for archaeology. Um, and I think a lot of it came down to is someone saw something in me that I didn't quite see in myself. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, with this and this, we can do this. And she had like a plan. Mm -hmm. you know, a plan for me that I never really had for myself. Um, like I said, my background was very kind of like, oh, let's play these pieces and improvise here. All of a sudden there was this regimented thing set up for me. And I think I liked that. Mm -hmm. So I think that might've what pu finally pulled me in maybe. Yeah. And then if going into pursue your master's, was that also a big decision for you? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, you know, I, I have like, I have my top fives in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think of a top five uh, best decisions I've ever made was to stick with going to my master's. Mm -hmm. And because at the time, um, you know, you know, as a senior right now, you know, you're burnt out, you're exhausted, mm -hmm. you've been working so hard, so many hours. I mean, I, I remember falling asleep in the practice room um, at 1am, waking up at three and heading back to my dorm and waking up at seven and coming back. I mean, you really worked really hard. And I didn't know if I was good enough for it yet. You know, I didn't quite feel that I had a very strict teacher who I know she had a goal for me. But I also was trying to figure out who I wanted to be what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't have that direction in my undergraduate. Um, and I also was always so insecure. I'm always playing catch up. Mm -hmm. But when Miss Richter came around and started talking to me about almost like that a different plan, like, no, 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 this is you know, okay to feel this way. Mm -hmm. A lot of students feel this way. Um, the big term that you've heard now is called imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. which is a, oh my goodness, that is a scary thing for all levels of your mm -hmm. study. And I have felt that pretty bad. I remember many conversations with my family over like, I don't think I'm good enough for a master's or, you know, like, uh, you know, I, it'll feel like I, it's like a fluke that I got there. You mm -hmm. know, I don't really deserve this or something. Um, so I was always thinking of back to my freshman year. I never got over of, you know, I'm always playing catch up. Mm -hmm. so Ms. Richter flipped that around for me. Do you think the thing that you struggled with most in your undergraduate was just feeling behind the curve? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, when you're at a school, I mean, University of Texas, especially, I mean, they have very high standards as they should. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so hard sometimes feeling you're not quite at there, but you know, you can, mm -hmm. you know, you can. Um, and I remember it's, I mean, little, little things like I got thrown uh, pretty quickly into the University of Texas wind ensemble, mm -hmm. which is with graduate students. So as a sophomore who had just learned how to follow a conductor a year ago, mm -hmm. I'm in there uh, trying to keep up, making sure I don't get that scary look from the conductor mm -hmm. um, and really trying to just bring up the skills as quickly as I can. And I'm telling you, fear will do that. <laughs> and good thing I was stubborn. Um, and yeah, yeah, it was quite a, a scary thing, but I still kept at it. Yeah. So. Was there ever a point when you were thinking, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do archaeology. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. <laughs> when I talk about those, because we had our music building open, I mean, 24 hours. It was amazing. Okay. And I remember we had a harp floor, and the three of us, we had uh, three harp majors, which is, is quite a lot, actually, for a school. Um, and we were a team, and I remember sitting there, uh, you know, 1 a.m., I would have, I had to get like monster energy drinks just to keep my, my energy levels up to get my practice because I had a lesson the next day. Mm -hmm. And thinking, you know, like, is this all worth it? I'm exhausted, my body is tired. You know, we get like rips in our hands and blisters, your back starts hurting. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know if this is what I wanted to do. Um, 
but then it's like, then you have a good performance and all that hard work suddenly comes to fruition and you're like, oh, okay, I'm okay. Yeah. And then you, you go back down again and then you have a good performance and then you go back down again. And it's like this constant up and down. And by senior year, you're just exhausted because the music's always going to get more challenging. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it was, is I was dreaming of a time where I could go to a job or do a task and it'd be done. Mm -hmm. Write the paper, you submit it, it's done. But in music, as you know, it never ends. Mm -hmm. Even now during coronavirus, I'm like, oh my gosh, I should be practicing more yeah. for my recital. My recital's gonna be in March. <laughs> so even then we still have that kind of thing. And I think you just get a little bit tired and worn out by it. Mm -hmm. um, what's some advice you have for younger musicians who are just struggling a little bit. Maybe you see them at your universities and you're like, okay, you know, I see the potential in them, but maybe they don't see it in themselves. I would say my advice is, um, because I know that it, I think one recognizing it's okay. Mm -hmm. is the first step. That's the definitely approach I take with my students because you bet there, sometimes there's going to be tears mm -hmm. and it's okay because you're doing a huge, huge thing. It's not normal. I mean, to be practicing four to five hours a day and you're also getting three hours of sleep and you're doing all your academic classes. This is not a normal life. Mm -hmm. and you're bound to get a pushback just because your psyche, clearly it's not normal for the psyche and it's not forever. So that's the biggest thing. It's never forever. And some of the phrases that helped me, especially when I was powering through that dissertation, mm -hmm. which is a whole new animal when it comes to your psyche, mm -hmm. is that really the only way out per se is through. Mm -hmm. through. And in the end, you always know more than you think you know, which no one believes me when I say that, but it's true. Just you <laughs> be amazed, especially when you get out beyond the college bubble, because mm -hmm. Well, uh, I mean, for example, when I started to understand in retail what the adult amateurs were like in harp, mm -hmm. I was just a rare animal. Whenever you're around everybody who's very talented and strong, it's easy to forget of what it's like out there, especially mm -hmm. in the amateur adult and beginner world. Mm -hmm. We just don't see that. We think everybody is at that level and everybody's judging us. Mm -hmm. So some of the phrases I'll use to kind of motivate the students, I'll write them in their music. I mean, in 10 years, whenever they're teaching their students, they're going to see, you know, I'll write it down, you know, never surrender, take no prisoners. <laughs> you know, it just, it's never over and it's okay uh, to feel frustrated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we talk about detour, for example, because um, that's kind of intertwined in that, because mm -hmm. uh, I realized uh, and I've actually, I think I've always known this, but it just took a while to have a, a good analogy for it is whenever we feel that way and we're just like, I just want to completely quit. A lot of what I realized, especially if you have your goal in mind of what you want. So for me, I, I've always wanted to be in academia and I always wanted to be that respected professor. I've always wanted to be a college professor and, you know, have a legacy and have a following. So when I'm gone, I don't disappear. You know, I think that's what's driving me through everything. So that kind of goal is always what, whenever I'm just sitting there in a practice room and, you know, I think to, okay, in my future, if I have students like this, what am I going to tell them when I'm doing this? You know, how I felt. And in a way saying that you went through it too is the first step. Acknowledging that, yeah, we're, you know, we're not godlike figures as professors. We go through it even now, actually. And the other one is uh, that whenever you're thinking about where you're going next, often your life is gonna take you, like you said, on a detour. And even then, a full-blown detour may be almost too extreme. Like it may actually be 
where, because I always imagine my life is we're on that big highway towards, for me, uh, a professor position. And that highway can get really crowded sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, crowded and you hit your roadblock and you're stuck. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, you wait till the next exit, you take the exit, you go on that frontage road. And yeah, I can still keep the, I still see the highway. I'm not doing a whole big detour and losing sight of the highway. Mm -hmm. I still see that highway. But when I see, oh, okay, okay, the traffic's loosened up a little bit. I get back on the highway and I go again for a little bit longer. So it's never like you fully leave sight of what you want. Mm -hmm. More like you just accept that you're going to have just a slight little change, then you get back on. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to full-blown changing of careers, I've never done that. I've always been focused on, you know, as a university professor, it, uh, it doesn't mean it won't happen. Mm -hmm. um, because life happens. I don't know if you, uh, you might have heard uh, about me. I, you know, I have a fiance who's in the military. Mm. So uh, you know, we might have to move every three to four years. And so what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. you know, I can't stay at the same school and do FaceTime all the time. Yeah. <laughs> what path? And I'm, I'm just going to have to take that next little, you know, that little segue, that little detour onto the front of the road mm -hmm. and wait to see what I can figure out. Yeah. Or it's never, ever just done. It's never just a complete change, for, at least for me. Mm -hmm. Others I know, but not for me. Yeah. Um, what are some of those little um, side roads <laughs> that you've taken yeah. in your career? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the one that was the most recent was actually came out whenever I was in my uh, doctorate. So I got ABD. So you're all but dissertation. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be on campus anymore, which is actually kind of nice. <laughs> So you can go live wherever you want, but you're still working on your dissertation. So magically, when that happened, I got a call from a, uh, a harpist who's, who lives in Hong Kong, and she owns a harp company, a harp retail company. And Ms. Richter recommended me, and boom, I think it was in six months, I was living in Hong Kong. Wow. And what I was doing there is I was teaching younger students. They were doing... Um, the ABRSM curriculum. So I had to figure out that curriculum, which is very different than doing Suzuki or something like that. Um, and I had to play harp, I mean, in the full gown with the gold harp up at the, um, the top of the Shangri-La Hotel, which absolutely, I just, oh, I hated it so much. Um, playing that, you know, playing happy birthday every night. Um, and, uh, and then I, of course, had to give recitals and help organize things, which was at the time good. Um, that was the fun part, but everything I had to do is work with, you know, young four-year-olds who were, you know, while I was trying to work with their hands, they're like punching their mom on the side and screaming and oh my gosh, it was just one of those things where I was like, okay, I took this detour thinking that, you know, it's Hong Kong, this is so exciting, but I feel so empty here. Mm. And for, um, after a while, I mean, I, I found my peace with it, mm -hmm. but then I actually got sick. Mm. So when I say got sick, um, I went home for Christmas, came back, and it was bad. I dropped about 20 pounds, fainting all the time. To this day, I don't know what it was. Um, yeah. And it was like kind of like the, the nail in the coffin type mm. thing. So I headed back home after I was better and finished up my dissertation, you know, back home with the parents, which, you know, after you've been living in Hong Kong, you're getting a doctorate, you've been on your own. I mean, no offense to all parents out there, but you, it, there's a certain level of just like you feel defeated. Mm. Like, how did this happen? I'm back at home, you know, sitting here where I grew up with high school and working on this paper. Um, so that's an example of where I was sitting there. I got back on that highway and I was stuck. Mm. Now it's stuck again. Do you think but, that is helping to motivate you finish your dissertation? 
No, actually, that was a very hard time in my life. Okay. Um, I think back to the hardest time in my life was actually whenever I was right after I got sick and was trying to finish mm. that dissertation. And that's actually where, you know, the magical people in your life really do help you. And mm -hmm. Seth, so Chris entered the picture. Um, and right around that time, I got the call to come out to Virginia. So James Madison University contacted me, Washington and Lee, and then the Virginia Harp Center, which is uh, a major retail company um, on the East Coast, because I had experience mm -hmm. in Hong Kong with retail. So it actually, as much as I was just so frustrated, it was the stepping stone to something else. Yeah. So even when you're feeling like this is the end, oh my gosh, there's always something still churning. And that's what I figured out pretty quickly. What brought you to your job at JMU? What brought me there was a combination of things, because if it was only, uh, for example, a, a JMU only, because it's an adjunct position, mm -hmm. and that is a whole different podcast to talk about adjunct. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you this, that unfortunately will not support enough for a full-blown move. Mm -hmm. What brought me was the fact that working at the Virginia Harp Center, which is kind of like a harp hub, mm -hmm. and I realized very quickly, the harp world is very small. Mm -hmm. And that hub, as a retailer, I was gonna be, um, Basically, the staff harpist, the one who would not only help pick out the instruments, you know, that come from the big line in Healy um, and from Camac in France. I was also the one who was going to help people find their instruments and help sell them. Mm -hmm. And I was able to see, I mean, all the repertoire and order it and go through it and be the one that someone says, hey, what's that yellow book that's intermediate and it has a canon and D in it? And I can just go boom, boom, boom. So my doctorate and all that stress, mm -hmm. I instantly could be the resource for that. And it was so rewarding. It mm -hmm. really was um, to be able to be that resource and feel like I was of use. Um, mm -hmm. And to this day, because of that, all the students that I have, I know exactly how to help them with their instrument, what pieces to go for, where to get them from, where not to get them from, um, how to change strings, what are the strings made of. All that retail experience was hard. Um, mm -hmm. Tell you, I'm talking to uh, people on the phone in retail. Just telling you, if you ever call people up in retail, be the, just be super kind and just yeah. love them because mm -hmm. they go through. I mean, they go through hell. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. Um, but that was it. Was a true joy. And I met wonderful harpists because professionals. I mean, mm -hmm. major players, Chicago Symphony harpists. I mean, all these people will come down, and I get to meet them, talk to them, go to the conferences. It was magical, and it paved the way. So it was one of those things I realized quickly that the adjunct position, yes, oh my gosh, I've always wanted to be a professor, but adjunct would not fully support me. It was a combination of them two and what they represented and what they could do in the future is mm -hmm. what made me jump. And I left Chris actually for that. Um, so we had to have a long distance relationship for, gosh, I think it was like a year and a half, two years. But we're still, well, we're good. We're still together, so which is good. But that was a tough decision for sure. Um, how would you define the moments in your life um, that were either detours or like off the path that you would have ideally had maybe? I think I would de define it kind of like what I told you about the highway scenario. Mm -hmm. um, it's never anything where I'm completely going off the road into the field. Mm -hmm. um, it's always been where I've been like, all right, you know, let's get off, let's just get off on this part here and let's just keep an eye out, be patient then get back on. It's always been something that I know, especially after realizing how everything has this kind of domino effect. Mm -hmm. Everything who you are and who you become are all a culmination of the experiences you have. Mm 
Mm. So, uh, you know, that four-year-old kicking his mom in those harp lessons. Uh, down to, you know, uh, parents screaming at me on the phone because, oh my gosh, my harp string is broken and how do I fix this? You know, uh, as silly as it sounds, that stuff paves the way to help you how to have more tolerance, more understanding. And overall, you're just more compassionate and willing to go through harder times later because mm -hmm. it's never easy. Mm -hmm. I will say, um, so there was there was one that I found one too that I was excited to share with you too. Um, and, but the ones that I think, especially that go in line with, you know, kind of how I'm talking about things. Um, there were two on here. Um, the one that uh, um, I liked was the, the Haydn one where he says there was no one near to confuse me. So I was forced to become original. Mm -hmm. And I love that because in a way I sometimes almost feels like I've always been on that detour. I mean, I didn't have to, I didn't go to a conservatory. You know, I, I, I didn't have ensemble practice for a decade before I came to school. I've always been kind of going my own route. Mm -hmm. that perspective, he's right. You know, you're forced to become original because I can't rely on just, you know, oh, your teacher was this mm -hmm. or uh, you went to this school. You have to, one, make sure you you know your stuff, of course, right? You can't just skirt through stuff. You can't, you know, just take the, the side road, you know, the, the, what is it? The side of the highway that people run on and cut over. We won't take that part. We only take our roads, but uh, you really have to kind of find your own path um, for me. And I really like that um, because it's true. And I'm going to continue to do that. I would say the best example of how I perceive that is, you know, when you think of your career, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are, if it's a two story house, you know, and they're going into the single uh, door, that's a single flight of stairs. You know, I'm, I'm going to learn how to build a ladder. Mm -hmm. right? I'm going to learn how to put that ladder up to the second story window and I'm going to go that way instead. Mm -hmm. And I have to live like that all the time. And it works actually. It really works. Times are changing. You can't just stick to the same stuff. Mm -hmm. So if the path you're thinking about is not it, you'd be surprised. Um, how other things happen in different ways, even though it's not what you originally imagined, actually. Yeah. And let's see here. Oh, the one I did want to sh uh, share with you, actually, um, from a book that pretty much, uh, uh, if you ever, hopefully in grad school, read this. Have you heard of The Sopranos? Oh, I have heard of it, yeah. Oh, my gosh, this <laughs> book. It, this is like one of the things you have, Miss Richter, my teacher, and this book like changed my life. Yeah. And the reason for it is it says right side up reflections on life and other performances. Mm -hmm. So it's that unconventional approach for an unconventional person mm -hmm. that helps reinforce it. And this book itself, the, the one quote that I absolutely love, um, it says, especially when it comes to teaching um, and your path throughout this life and mm -hmm. you know, teaching itself, she says that nobody ever teaches anyone else how to teach. So let's not pretend you learn how to teach by opening up, by questioning, by doubting, by exploring, by rebelling. You learn how to teach by just learning how to learn. Mm. And all those little sidetracks that we take, you know, all that little things, that's how you learn. That's how you learn how to learn. It's not someone telling you what it is. You just got to be willing to go for it. Mm -hmm. Definitely been great chatting with you and I love thinking about this too and putting it down because I, my perspective changes all the time mm -hmm. you know every student almost changes perspectives with me because everyone has their own path mm -hmm. so hey honestly if, as long as people are willing to be open and learn and 
in the end, I, I feel like, uh, you know, you talk about success and failure, but failure really is just learning mm-hmm. and learning is success. So mm-hmm. if you take that approach, things don't seem so bad if they don't go the way you want. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I really enjoyed speaking with Dr. Wapple, And one thing in particular that she mentioned, I found really motivating and inspiring. She said, failure is learning and learning is success. That seems really simple, but I think a lot of students especially do not see failure as success, um, the A plus B equals C sort of situation. If you're interested in other episodes of the Detours in Music podcast, you can find it on my website, laurarupeloboe.weebly.com, or on the Detours in Music podcast YouTube channel. You can also hear the podcast on Spotify and Apple Music podcast apps, although we are a little bit backtracked on those as I can only input two hours worth of episodes on the first of every month. Another great way to stay connected to the podcast is with the Detours in Music podcast Instagram. Thank you for listening and I hope you tune in to the next episode.